You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 this morning, but before you get there, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where I want to read four verses that will, in one sense, kind of uh, parallel what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. And so we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to just read again four verses there that will help us to get a hold of the application of our study this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. And then look at verse 12. Paul now applies what he's just written in those three verses to you and me. He says, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are blessed to be here. Lord, as I prayed in the first service, I just look so forward to Sunday mornings and evenings when we have the opportunity to worship together. Lord, I enjoy the time that I get to worship you in my private devotionals during the week. But there's something wonderful, something special and marvelous about gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ, men and women who are passionate about you. And Lord, with our lips and with our voices and with our words, expressing our thanksgiving, our gratitude, our appreciation and our love for you. Our awesome wonder that you the holy God that we just sang about, would love people as unholy as we are and that you would redeem us and that you would make us holy in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, having worshipped you this morning, our hearts are now filled with joy, our minds and our attention are focused on you, and we pray now that you would open our ears to hear your word and that your word would be planted deep in our heart. And that watered by your spirit that it might produce the fruit that you desire. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 11 this morning. And for those of you who are note takers, I would title this section of Ephesians, The Gifts of Unity. And you'll see why as we get into the study. Now, if you were here the last time that I filled in for Pastor Damien, we looked at the first six verses of Ephesians 4, and there Paul talked about the unity of the church, both universal and local. In other words, the unity that we have within a local assembly like this church, but also the unity we have with the greater body of Christ throughout the world. All of those men and women of different denominational flavors and, 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 and particular or particularities, but who are united around the person of Christ and the doctrine that defines the Christian faith. And Paul exhorted us in those first six verses that we have a personal responsibility as individual believers to both create and to maintain the unity of the church through two primary means. Number one, to have an attitude of unity. 
And what I mean by that, and what Paul meant by that, is to have a Christ-like attitude towards one another. That is, here in this fellowship, to prefer others before ourselves. In this fellowship, to serve one another rather than always seeking to be served. And in this fellowship, extending grace to one another as we will undoubtedly do, offend each other, whether intentionally or unintentionally, or misunderstand one another, or maybe even willfully transgress against one another. But the unity we're called to to in the body of Christ demands that we extend grace to one another just as Christ has been gracious to us. And then with that attitude of unity, Paul reminds us that our unity is built on a foundation of the essential truths of the Christian faith, which he wrote about in those first six verses of this chapter. Those things that unite us and define us as, a, as something different than the world. In other words, what is Christian is different than what is Buddhist. What is Christian is different than what is existentialist. What is Christian, those common doctrines that define our faith as the foundation of the unity that we have. Well, in this section, as Paul moves forward, he's going to now build on that theme of unity by revealing another marvel of the church, and that is that the unity of the church is manifest through a great and a God-given diversity. In other words, we're not all the same. But in that diversity of believers who make up the body of Christ, that by God's design, he has placed different people with different gifts together to build the unity of the church. Well, let me illustrate it this way. In the early church, they certainly had their problems, as we read about in the epistles. But they also, on the other hand, did a great job of expressing unity in their agape feast. Now, the agape feast, agape is that Greek word for divine love. And what the church would do, the local churches throughout the Roman Empire in that first century, is that they would gather together to share a common meal. They would literally sit down to have dinner together. They would break bread together, share a cup together. And what you would see in that group was a great diversity of people all loving each other, just as Jesus said should be our testimony. That is in John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, by this you will be known as my disciples. He said, by your great doctrine, no. By your amazing testimony and witness, no. He said, by this one thing that you have love one for another, you will be distinct and different than all the rest of the world. And in the first century, unbelieving Jews and Gentiles all over the Roman Empire were amazed that they looked at this agape feast at the testimony of love as expressed in a great diversity of believers in which the church was made up of. In other words, the church was made up of Romans and Greeks and Jews and Scythians and men and women who were once barbarians, slaves and masters, men and women, people with brown and white and black skin, people of all different social strata, all worshiping together and sharing a common meal together at the Sagape feast. And that kind of unity was not seen anywhere else in any other environment in the Roman Empire. Rather than as it is today, people would often group and gather around some commonality. For example, people would tend to gather together around their culture or around the color of their skin or around their social status. But the church of Jesus Christ in the first century removed all of those distinctions and recognized that there was unity in the God-given diversity 
of those who had called in faith. So great was their love that one ancient Roman historian wrote, and I quote, their master, speaking of Christ, makes them think that they are brothers, end of quote. In other words, as the unbelieving world looked at the Christian church and saw this incredible diversity, but all unified in Christ, in their mind, what they were seeing is that their master, Jesus, makes them think they're all part of the same family. And in fact, we are. Paul describes it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Writing to the Christians there, he reminds them that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither is there male nor female, for you are all, listen, one in Christ Jesus. In other words, unity, but a great diversity, a God-given diversity in that unity. The wonderful truth then is the church, like the human body, as Paul mentioned in our opening text in 1 Corinthians 12, has a diverse members, hands, feet, fingers, eyes, liver, kidneys, all those things, but each and every part is essential to make the body work, work properly. And here's the application. Right up front, I want you, this is what I want you to take home today. If you take nothing else home today, this is what the Lord wants you to take away, is that you are important to the body of Christ individually. And that you and I need one another. There are no extra parts. There are no vestigial appendages, right? Oh, we don't need that. Let's just cut it out. No, God has placed each and every one of us in a particular local church within the greater body of Christ. Each of us needed, each of us appreciated. And so if you get nothing else this evening or this morning, you want to take this home. Number one, that you are needed. And number two, that you and I need one another. Now, that's not to say <laughs> that with any group of people, even in the church, that there's going to be some person or a couple of people that eh, maybe you're just not going to connect with. In other words, they just don't share the same hobby as you do. They don't have the same likes you do. God forbid they might not even like chocolate. Can you imagine? But the point is, that even though there may be people that we disagree with and sometimes maybe have some serious disagreements with about peripheral issues, nonetheless, we are connected because of Christ and by his design, he's put you and me together to be unified. Let me illustrate it this way. I think of the early church in Jerusalem who once feared Saul of Tarsus and for good reason. This was a man who was imprisoning Christians and having Christians committed to death. But Paul, excuse me, Saul, who was once feared by the church in Jerusalem, they later recognized after he came to Christ as a gift from God to the church in Jerusalem. And in fact, to the greater church throughout the Roman Empire. So too, Paul wants us to be reminded of this morning that there's this amazing, wonderful, marvelous diversity within the body of Christ, and yet with that great diversity, there is a unity surrounded by, empowered by, directed by Christ himself. So let's look at how Paul tells us or how Paul instructs us concerning this wonderful diversity that we have in the church. And he begins in verse 7 by reminding us of the gifts of grace. Look at verse 7, Ephesians 4. He says, but to each one of us, now, by the way, by way of application, every one of you who are listening, who is born again, he's including you. Each one of us was given 
grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul here is reminding us that the diversity of the church is not just physical. In other words, short and tall, black and white, right? Male and female, Jew and Greek. No, no, it goes beyond that. He tells us that there is a spiritual diversity. There in verse 7, that word measure, you might underline or highlight that word. It communicates that the Holy Spirit has given by measure a diverse gift and a diverse ability to use that gift to each and every person in the body of Christ that we might serve one another. In other words, every believer, and again, that includes you and me this morning, has been given a unique gift and a unique ability to use that gift. By way of illustration, think of the parable of talents that Jesus told. In the parable of talents, he says, to one man, five talents was given, to another three, and to another one. Now go back and read that, and Jesus says, each according to his ability. In other words, the man that was given three talents was given three talents and the unique gifting and grace to operate and oversee those three talents. But five talents would have been too much. He would not have been gifted to handle that. And Paul's point and Jesus' point is that each of us is called to use our diverse gifts with the unique ability and gifting that God has given by his grace to build unity in the church so that we might grow individually and corporately in our spirituality, that we might move from immature to mature believers and followers of Christ. And the point, again, is that the diversity of the church is God-ordained, and it's designed because the reality is that like the body, we function better when we're not all the same. So I illustrate it this way. <laughs> Some of you are following the <clears throat> college basketball championships, the March Madness, and just hold on for a minute. I overcome with a little grief as Duke took out Arkansas last night. I forgive you, Coach K. <laughs> Love you, brother. <laughs> In any event, when you look at a basketball team, right, now if you don't know anything about basketball, you might mistakenly think that you want to stack your team with all seven foot eight giants. In other words, you're close to the basket. It's easier to put that ball in the basket if you're close to it. Why would you want a five foot six guy, you know, or whatever? But the reality is that there's diversity within that unit, that team, right? And that diversity is designed because the reality is the guy that's seven at foot eight, he doesn't move real fast. He kind of lumbers, right? And if you want him to be really like, you know, dialed in and skilled, <laughs> no. he's good at blocking guys. He's good at rebounding. But if you want a ball handler, you want a little guy that is like twice as fast and can go between the legs of that big guy and get the ball down to the court where he can shove it to the big guy who boom, drops in the, in, in the basket. In other words, you need a bunch of different people to make it work. You need ball handlers. You need blockers. You need rebounders. You need shooters. You need, you need all those different people to make a team work in unity, diver, diversity within unity, to accomplish a goal. Well, that's what God is communicating to us through the Apostle Paul. Not only here in Ephesians, but as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about the body of Christ as being like a human body. And his point there is, listen, we can't have just a nose. <laughs> and again, it's kind of comical. Paul, I, I, I can imagine him pinning in spiral Holy Spirit, just kind of cracking up and thinking about an eight-foot-two nose, right? 
well, okay, you can smell real good, right? Great olfactory senses, but you can't taste anything. And if you need to walk somewhere, you are stuck, right? You got to kind of hope that the wind is going to roll you over and you can move two or three feet. No, you need feet, you need hands, you need eyes, right? The whole package to be able to function properly. And that's Paul's point here. He reminds us of the diversity of the gifts of grace that God has given to the church and that the body of Christ functioned perfectly as designed it, unity but with diversity. Every member, every person essential. And again, I'm telling you with the authority of Scripture that you who are seated here this morning, that there are a follower of Christ, you who are watching this online live or will watch it later, I am telling you, with the authority of Scripture, you belong and are important to the church. And we need you. We all need to take our place of service in the body of Christ, first in the local body in which he's planted us, and then that global body, that universal body of Christ. In other words, for Calvary Chapel Modesto to fulfill its God-given purpose, each of us has to take our place. And I would encourage you, if you don't know what to do, that you would just look around for something that needs to be done and then just do it. Now, I'm going to use myself as an example, and I don't want to be the hero of my story. It's just, it, it's, it's personal, and I think it's, it's instructive. That is, when we first came to Calvary Modesto in 1987, we were meeting back on 10th and F, and it was a, you know, a smaller group of people back then, and we were meeting in a converted dairy. And the part of the building that we were meeting in was what used to be the shop where the dairy trucks were repaired. So there were lifts and hoists and all that. That all had to be taken out and and modified so that we could meet there as a church. But the door into the church, because it had once been a shop, was a solid metal door. I think it weighed near two and a half tons. Well, probably not. That's an exaggeration. But in any event, you get the idea. And I remember as just a new member of of that church coming Sunday mornings and I would see an elderly person kind of walk up there with their cane and then they would pull on that door. It's like, it's like, I mean, the door literally weighs two or three times what they weigh and they get their cane in there and two hands, right? I'm exaggerating. But in any event, I thought, oh my goodness, it would, somebody needs to stand out here and open the door, right? And so I asked Pastor Damien, I said, hey, I know we're new to the fellowship, Would it be okay if I just showed up early on Sunday morning and opened the door for people? And he said, yes. In fact, thank you. I have been concerned about that because I see the need, but obviously I'm in, you know, in in the sanctuary. I can't be at the front door. So I just started showing up 30 minutes before service and, and through 15 minutes into service. And I would just show up and open the door. Now, I had an alternative motive, and that was... We were new to the church, and so it's my opportunity to get to know people. So here comes somebody along the, you know, the, uh, here comes this, you know, this woman, and it's like, uh, I, I, mm, is it Ruby? No, no, no. J- Jim? J- J- Jewel. Oh, <laughs> Jewel, okay. Jewel. So next week, when I call her Ruby, she goes, no, no, it's Jewel. Well, after four or five times, it sticks, right? So that's how I got to know people. So it was, you know, I was blessed. Now, here's what I didn't know. Pastor Damien is watching. I said I was going to do it, right? I volunteered. I said I would do it. Would I actually do it? In other words, would I be faithful to do what I promised to do? And again, this is not, this is not difficult, right? Open the door like this. Right? I mean, shake people's hands, smile, be friendly. I mean, 
Easy, right? Doesn't re- there's no spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, the door opener, right? <laughs> but Pastor Damien wanted to know, would I be faithful to do that? And so I did. And then if I was going to be out of town for a vacation or if I was sick, I had a couple guys that I would call and they would take my place. Well, months go by and finally I feel like God's telling us, my wife and I, that we were to start a home fellowship. And at that point, there were no home fellowships at Calvary Chapel Modesto. So I approached Pastor Damien and I said, hey, Pastor Damien, I'm wondering, would you be interested in us starting home fellowship during the week? And Pastor Damien said, well, what curriculum are you thinking about? So I showed him what we were looking at. He said, I think that'd be a great idea. But his approval was based upon the faithfulness he had seen in me just opening the door for people. In other words, do something, do something, right? Get involved. (laughs) And then as you do that faithfully, then more opportunities open. Just like in Acts 6, right? Those men chosen to basically do meals on wheels, just make sure people get fed. And then out of that group, we get Philip the evangelist and Stephen, the great preacher and first martyr of the church. So if you don't know what to do, listen, there's plenty to do. We, we can use more guys on bikes in the parking lot to make sure that the parking lot's safe so that as moms and, and, and people are bringing their kids in and out and all that, that they know it's a safe environment. We need people to clean. And again, as I said last time, I guarantee there's no one here that's gonna argue with you if you volunteer to clean toilets. Whoa, bro, are you kidding? That's my, that is my kingdom, Right? I, no, this is my, this is my scepter, right? <laughs> Toilet brush, right? No, right? Just look for a need and fill it. And as you do that, here's what happens. God will then, as you show him yourself faithful to do that thing, whatever that next right thing to do is, he will begin to make known to you what gifts he has given and what call is upon your life. He never works with the person that just decides to stay at home and, and, and you know, sit on the couch and, and participate through the television. That, that's not the person. He's looking for the person who is willing to serve. Additionally, may I say, it means that we need to recognize and appreciate the diverse gifts that God has given to us in this fellowship. In other words, it can sometimes be our human nature to be critical of people who don't manifest their gifting the way that we think they should. In other words, you know, for example, I have a way that I like to teach. I'm an expositional Bible teacher. And I can kind of get a little chafed when I'm sitting and listening to somebody that moves right from the text to evangelism. It's like, whoa, time out. You skipped right over the interpretation. You're you're giving it, come on now. But that gift I need to appreciate because that person is gifted to be a preacher more than a teacher. Or I remember there are some guys, I remember listening to, to one man in particular, who would start with the text, skip right over the interpretation, move right into kind of a prophetic application to the nation. I mean, he just, he had, he had a prophetic anointing where he's just dialed in and talking about what God is speaking to, to us as a people. And I think, well, wait a minute, you, you, didn't, you didn't do the way I do it. And God had to, to, to bust me and show me that, listen, God, Paul, I get to choose how my gifts are given and how those diverse gifts are going to operate. You just sit back and receive the blessing. Okay, I can do that. Preach it, brother. (laughs) Well, Paul moves on now from describing the, the gifts of grace to the spoils of victory. Look at verses 8 to 10. Paul quotes from Psalm 68 there in verse 8. He says, therefore, he says... 
When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this is, he ascended, Paul writes, what does it mean but it, that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all that is heaven or all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, in these three verses, Paul really summarizes the theme of Psalm 68 for the purpose of showing us the source of the diverse gifts and the diverse gifted people that God has given to the church. Now, the context is this. Psalm 68 was written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to celebrate the great victories that God gave to the nation of Israel. In other words, when King David marched out and with a small band or a small army, defeated a massive army of the Philistines or the Edomites or the, the, the Amorites or whoever he was fighting, they would come back to Jerusalem and they would thank God, singing Psalm 68, for the spoils of victory. In other words, they acknowledge, God, you did this, right? You used a, a tiny us, this little teeny nation, to defeat far greater foes. Well, Paul takes it, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he rewrites a portion of Psalm 68 to apply to the church. Now, in Psalm 68, verse 18, if you were to read it, it reads this way. You have received gifts from men, right? Received gifts from men. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit in verse 8, says this, that God gave gifts to men. So one is received, Paul changed it again by the Spirit, to gave gifts to men. And the truth that Paul's communicating is this. Just as the military victor, the Jews, say, celebrating Psalm 68, would give the spoils of war to their loyal soldiers, so too Jesus has given the spoils of victory victory over Satan, over sin, and over death to those who trust and follow him. And those spoils of the diverse spiritual gifts that he has given to us individually, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12, but then in here in Ephesians chapter 4, the diverse people that Jesus has given to the church as leaders in the church to bless the church and to help it to grow and mature in Christ. So let me point this out because I know sometimes we'll have a person will say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, I'm kind of an independent individual, kind of a, an American all the way through to the roots. So I don't know that I need anybody to teach me. In fact, I got a verse for that. 1 John chapter 2, verse 27 tells me that I got the Holy Spirit to be a teacher, so I don't need a teacher. Well, that's true on, on the one hand. But the same Holy Spirit that inspired John to pen 1 John inspired Paul to pen, to pen Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, and Ephesians chapter 4 to remind us that you and I need gifted people in our lives to teach us the word of God and to help us to mature in Christ. In other words, we're not called to be Lone Ranger Christians. We're part of a body. And while, yes, it's true, I have the Holy Spirit to teach me, I got to tell you, there's times in Scripture where I come to a section of the Bible and go, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I, I'm clueless. And I need gifted teachers to help me to interpret and understand what the Scripture says. And that's what Paul's communicating. Now, before we move into verse 11, where Paul talks about these gifted leaders, I have to give this little disclaimer. 
I know that some of you are sitting on the edges of your seat thinking, okay, verses 9 and 10, he, right, who descended to the lower parts of the earth, what in the world does that mean? He who ascended, <laughs> pretty exciting. I don't have time to cover it. <laughs> because if I do, we'll be here through lunch, and I know I'll lose all of you, and it's going to be like, oh, boy, that stomach is growling. We'll cover that at a different time. In short, some believe that what Paul is describing where it says he descended, some believe he's talking about the incarnation. He left heaven, came to the earth to be born as a man do ministry, and then he ascended back. Others say, no, 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 it's talking about, as Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, when Jesus was dead, he descended in the lower parts of the earth to preach to those who are in prison, who are waiting for Christ to do the work that he would do on the cross, that they might be released to go to heaven. Well, you can argue about that over four espressos. It's a great topic, and I would just encourage you that whatever your position, that if somebody has a different position, that you engage them in grace and talk and listen to each other. We'll cover that in depth some other time. The focus this morning is on, again, the gifted leaders that God has given us. Look at first, or excuse me, Ephesians 4.11. Paul writes, and he himself gave some. So it's a gift. Gave, notice that, giving some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, again, you'll notice this list is very different than the list of spiritual gifts that Paul gives us in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. In those two lists, he talks about all of the different giftings that the Holy Spirit can give to individual believers that we're to use for the edification of the church. But here, notice he's talking about gifted people. In other words, offices, positions, people within the church, leaders in the church that, that, that serve to protect the church, to grow the church, to mature the church. In other words, these are positions of leadership to help us to grow in truth and unity. Now, a very important point, again, look at verse 11. You might want to underline or highlight that word he, where Paul writes, and he. In the original text in the Greek, the Greek grammar is such that Paul, in a sense, was like circling the word he, underlining it, highlighting it, pointing arrows at it, because the he is emphatic in the original text to remind us that Jesus is the source of these gifted people. In other words, apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers are not career choices. No, no, they are people who have been called by God and then given as gifts by God to the church for the edification of the body of Christ. These are not self-appointed men, nor are these skills that you can obtain through education or ex and experience. These people are gifts from God to his church to help it to grow. So I want to look at the different people that Paul talks about, both historically, in other words, New Testament examples and modern-day examples, that we might understand how these people or what their function is and how they build up the body of Christ. Well, notice Paul begins the list there in verse 11 by listing apostles first. And that's because, as Paul writes later, and so does Peter, remember, Christ is the cornerstone upon which the church is built, and then the foundation is the apostles and prophets. In other words, the apostles were those first sent out by Jesus to proclaim the gospel, the gospel of Christ. Now, the word apostle is simply a transliteration of the Greek word apostolos, which means simply one who is sent. In other words, sent by Jesus 
to communicate the gospel message. In other words, that gift of an apostle is that supernatural ability given to people to introduce the gospel message to a new group of people or a particular group of people who have never heard of Christ. The name of Jesus never mentioned. The gospel never breathed in, their, in, their, in, their, in this people group. And then having preached the gospel and people respond to the gospel, the apostle then disciples those people, builds them up, and then plants a local church, raises up trains leaders, and then moves on. In other words, a pa- or excuse me, an apostle is different than the pastor in the sense that the apostle is going to plant a church and move on. Plant a church and move on where a pastor typically is going to be committed to a local assembly for the course of his ministry. So by way of example, we read in the book of Acts how the apostle Paul in his first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey, he would come to a community where the gospel had never been preached. He would go to the marketplace or the synagogue. He would declare the gospel. People responded. People got saved. He would disciple them. He would establish leadership, plant a church, and move on. He never stayed in any one place for any extended length of time. Sometimes, like at Thessalonica, Paul was only there two weeks <laughs> before he got driven on by the Jews who were trying to persecute him. Other places, like, for example, Corinth, he was there for about a year and a half, Ephesus for three years. But again, he never stayed in any one place because he was an apostle. And then, as he would move on, as we have in our New Testament, we have Paul's epistles, letters he wrote to those churches he planted to encourage them in their growth, to help them to grow in their understanding of the gospel message and of the deeper truths of the Bible. So he was a father to multiple, many churches, not just one. Well, I would suggest that when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, apostles, that specifically he has in mind the 12. In other words, those who have the office of an apostle. Additionally, or by way of evidence, let me suggest this. That in Luke we read, and in fact all the gospels, when Jesus chooses his apostles, that he chooses specifically after a night of prayer, 12 men. Not 13, not 11, not 15, 12. And in fact, Jesus in the book of Matthew says to the 12, he says that in the regeneration, speaking of when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, he says, you who have faithfully followed me will sit on 12 thrones ruling the nation of Israel. Interesting because when we get to Acts chapter 1, after Judas has fallen and committed suicide, the 11 recognize they need to fill a spot. Now, I think they got ahead of the Lord there, but nonetheless, they understood that there needed to be 12. They chose Matthias. They didn't choose Matthias and four more guys. They didn't leave it at 11. They chose a 12th person. Then when we get to Revelation chapter 21, we find that John, in his vision of the new Jerusalem, sees as 12 foundations named after the 12 apostles. So I'm going to suggest, and you're welcome to have a different opinion, that there's an office of an apostle, speaking of the 12, in my personal opinion, with $5, we'll get you coffee at Starbucks, is that Matthias was the wrong guy that Paul was Jesus' choice to replace Judas. We'll find out for sure in heaven. My point is this, they occupy the office of an apostle. But then we read in the New Testament that there's others that the New Testament writers call apostles, like James, the half-brother of Jesus, Barnabas, Andronicus, and Junius. 
But I would suggest they have the gift of the apostle, that is, they take the gospel message to a, a place where people have never heard the gospel, preach the gospel, plant a church, but not, they weren't in the office. Now, if that works for you, great. If not, I'll sit down over coffee with you if you're buying and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Just kidding. Question. People often wonder, are there apostles today? Now, again, my personal conviction is that there are people who de- today who operate the gift of, the, of an apostle, not the office. I would point to missionaries who travel to places where Christ has never been preached, where the name of Jesus has never been heard. I think of guys, for example, like Burt Elliott. And you think, oh, Pastor Paul, don't you mean Jim Elliott? You know, Jim Elliott, the guy through Gates of Splendor, the, the famous evangelist who was martyred for his faith. No, no, I don't mean Jim Elliott. I mean his brother Burt. And you're thinking to yourself, Burt? Didn't know there was. I thought Burt was on Sesame Street. No, Burt Elliott. Burt Elliott and his wife, Colleen, spent their entire ministry in the nation of Peru where they planted 170 churches. Now, come on. That's like a mic drop. Whoa, like, are you 100? Yes. They would go to one village. They'd preach the gospel. They would, people would get saved. They'd disciple a group of people. They'd train up leadership. They'd turn the church over to, to nationals, to ethnic, you know, the, the people that were indigenous to that area. Move on to another church 170 times. In my view, that is the gift of an apostle. So today I would say that the missionary who goes where the gospel has never been preached has the gift of an apostle, but again, not the office. So again, that's my distinction. Some people would agree with that, some don't. And again, if you want to buy me coffee, we'll go talk about it. All right. The point is that the apostles were given by Christ to the church to expand the kingdom of God throughout the world and to reach areas that have been unreached by the gospel message. Well, next, Paul talks about prophets. Prophets are those people gifted by God to bless the church through prophecy. Now, prophecy is interesting because in the scripture, it's kind of used in two different ways. In other words, it doesn't always mean the same thing. On the one hand, it simply means to tell forth the word of God. On the other hand, it can also mean to foretell the future. So let me illustrate it this way. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians 14, he's instructing the church about how to have an orderly church service. And he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Well, what are they speaking? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 3, Paul says, edification, exhortation, and comfort to the church. In other words, they have the unique ability to breathe life into the word of God for that particular moment in the life of an individual or church. Another example, Peter on the day of Pentecost, right? There's a sound of a rushing mighty wind, and then these Galilean country bumpkins who are uneducated men begin to speak in perfect dialects of all of the different peoples that are gathered in Jerusalem for the feast. And people come running up because of the commotion, and they see a guy like Peter that they recognize, okay, this guy's a fisherman. He has trouble with, you know, with Aramaic, and he's speaking perfect, right, Latin, like he was born into it, educated in it. it, it how did that happen? Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, now breathes life into the prophecy of Joel. He takes the word of God and for, tells forth how it is applied in that particular situation. In other words, Pentecost was the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. But then there are other prophets who foretell the future. I think of guys like the apostle John, who was given the revelation And he says right there in chapter 1, this is the 
prophecy, right, of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's prophetic speaking of what is yet to come. Or think of men like Agabus in Acts Acts chapter 11, who by the Spirit of God predicted a coming famine that would affect the entire Roman Empire. And it did in fact come. The question then that people like to ask, well, I see that in Scripture, are there prophets today? Well, again, a lot of debate in the church depends on who you ask. And again, it makes for a great conversation. Again, let's keep it friendly, right? People have different views. But I would suggest that God still does work through the gift of prophecy. In fact, I have been the recipient of godly men who have spoken prophetic words in my life that, again, you knew, you knew that this was from the throne of God itself. They had knowledge that they could not have in any, by any other means. They spoke by word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or prophecy, and God spoke through them. But we also know that there are a lot of false prophets, as Jesus warned us. In other words, there are people who claim to be a prophet of God, but we know they are not because the fruit in their life doesn't match what Jesus said should be the fruit of a prophet, nor do they say things that are in line with this word. So if you run into a person that says that they speak for the word of, or they speak for God, that they're a prophet or a prophetess of God, and they have some new word that's going to be in addition to this book, <laughs> you just run and run fast. Get away from them. Just as we are warned to do by James, excuse, excuse me, by Jude and Peter. Now, I think of men like Joseph Smith, who claimed to be a prophet of God. In fact, the Mormons that come to your door will say he is a prophet of God. He even says, claims that he was given new revelation, given the Book of Mormon, supposedly a companion to this book. Well, I reject that. He's a false prophet. And the Book of Mormon is false prophecy. And so we need to be wise in this day to discern between who is a true prophet versus a false prophet. And I wish we had time to get into all of the details of how you judge, but let me just point you to two scriptures that you can look at later to see how we should judge a person who claims to be a prophet. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 to 20, that we're to judge them by their fruit. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, that we're to test the spirit. And so check those scriptures out, as well as the entire book of Jude, and you'll get the test of a prophet. And you can apply that to anyone who might claim to be a prophet to discern whether they are or are not. Well, next Paul talks about evangelists. An evangelist is a person especially supernaturally gifted to communicate the gospel to unbelievers that produces a response in their hearts so that people actually get saved. In other words, a true evangelist can share the exact same words and scriptures that you or I who are not evangelists might share, and they would get a response and we won't. (laughs) I'll illustrate it this way. If Greg Laurie was to give me one of his studies, in other words, just download all the notes for me, kind of coach me through it, and I have all the notes in front of me, put me on a stage at Angel Stadium with 70,000, 80,000 people packed in at one of his Harvest Crusades, I guarantee you that I would teach it and preach it with all of the power and passion and gifting that God has given me as a pastor teacher and give the invitation and crickets. Like seven people come forward. Greg teaches the exact same study. Word for word gives the invitation 7,000 people come forward. 
Now, I've seen that, by the way, when I did ministry in, in, in Nigeria, when I was asked to give an evangelistic message versus others who are really truly prophets, or excuse me, evangelists. So it's a supernatural gifting to communicate the gospel in a way that elicits a response in the unbeliever. I think in the New Testament, men like Philip, who our good friend Dr. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 21, was an evangelist. In other words, he identifies Philip as an evangelist. We see that, by the way, early in the book of Acts, where Philip comes to the city of Samaria, preaches, and the whole city comes to faith in Christ. It's like, oh, yeah, right? But then in the middle of the revival, that same Philip was sent by the Holy Spirit into the desert to a deserted place just to stand on a road, nobody around, to share the gospel with someone else. And here comes a chariot. And the Holy Spirit tells Philip, hey, Philip the evangelist, now it's not a city, I got a man. I want this one guy to hear the gospel. And so Philip chases down the chariot, hears him reading from the book of Isaiah out loud, and he cries out, do you understand what you're reading? Stop the chariot. And the, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And beginning of that scripture, the Bible tells us Philip preached Christ, and the guy gets saved. So an evangelist, again, is somebody supernaturally gifted to communicate the gospel of Christ. Now, by the way, that doesn't excuse us. We're all called to share our faith. I'm just saying that some are supernaturally gifted to bring in a greater harvest than the rest of us. I think of men today or, or contemporaries, I would say, in, in the church age, uh, guys like Adele Moody or Billy Graham who preached to, to millions and millions of people. Contemporary guys like Greg Glory or, if I've got his name pronounced right, Nick Vujicic. I probably said that wrong. You, you'll know who he is when I, when I describe him. He's that brother from Australia who was born with no arms and no legs and preaches the gospel. Now, I got to tell you, most people, if you're born with no legs, no arms, would just hide somewhere and just wait till death. Oh, not Nick. The guy's just full of the joy of the Lord, and everywhere he goes, they got to carry him, right? Set him on a table or something and preach the gospel. And he gets people's attention because they're looking, going, all right, listen, I stubbed my toe, and I'm having a bad day, right? I'm depressed. I'm, this guy, are you serious? And when he shares his faith, it, it communicates with so much authenticity, right? That the joy of the Lord is real, even in his life. And it's like, I got to get in on that. And he shares the gospel, people get saved. All right, moving on. Paul talks about pastor teachers. Now, in the Greek text, the word pastor is only used this one time in the New Testament and only once in the Old Testament. And it simply speaks of a, of a man who tends or herds flocks. In other words, it's more than just throwing food out there and walking away. The word shepherd implies somebody that's with the sheep. Somebody that's there to feed them and care for them and to protect them. This is the person that, that's there in the cold of night and the heat of summer like, like young David, right? Who takes the sheep from the lowlands to the highlands as the seasons change and back down again in the winter. Who's always taking care of them, you know, making sure that they get shorn when they, their wool gets too thick. Making sure that they got no bugs in their ears and eyes. Making sure that they're taken care of. That's a shepherd. Now, in the New Testament... More often, that person is called an overseer or a bishop or a deacon, or excuse me, an elder, uh, as Paul identifies them in his pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus. In other words, this is a man who is supernaturally called and gifted by God to feed and to care for and to protect a group of local believers in a church. 
in a sense, the pastor then is that teaching elder within the local church. And in fact, in the original Greek here in verse 11, where it says pastor, teacher, the grammar suggests that it's combined. It's not two separate positions. It's pastor, teacher, reminding us that the primary purpose or function of the pastor in a local church is to feed God's flock with the word of life, to give them the Bible week in and week out. In the New Testament, I'd point to guys like Timothy and Titus, Paul's disciples, pastors of local churches. Today, we would recognize men like uh, Charles Spurgeon, right? Or, now here's one of my favorite guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. (laughs) You're thinking, what? Yeah, later today, get on YouTube, look at Dr. S.M. Lockridge and his sermon on Jesus. You'll be blown away. I think of our own Pastor Damien Kyle, who is God's gift to Calvary Chapel Modesto, where he has faithfully cared for and taught and protected the flock for three decades. And so a pastor is that that person, that man that's called to oversee a local assembly. And then finally, we have teachers. Now, as I just said in Ephesians 4, verse 11, the pastor-teacher is combined. But I think there's biblical evidence that there is an additional person that's called to be a teacher of God's word that's distinct from being a pastor. And I would point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, where Paul writes, God's appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, sounds kind of like Ephesians 4, 11. But then he says, third, teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues. In other words, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul makes a separate category of people called teachers who are not necessarily called to be pastors. I think of men like Apollos, who in Acts chapter 18, verse 23 to 25, here's how he's described. Luke tells us now a certain man named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. And so later corrected by uh, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, he was fully uh, instructed in the ways of the Lord and went out and powerfully taught at churches all over the Roman Empire. Now what's interesting is as you look at the record of the book of Acts and in, and the, and in the epistles, Apollos is never described as a pastor or as an apostle or as an evangelist. He's a teacher. He teaches with great power and authority. He's a gifted communicator to take the word of God and put it out there that we can understand it. Today, I would think of men like perhaps a Josh McDowell or the brilliant Oxford mathematician John Lennox who are gifted communicators who are able to... to to offer an apologetic and a defense of the Christian faith and are brilliant in the way they communicate so that they are able to take deep, deep truths and put them out there that simple people like you and me can understand. I think, for example, of the late Kay Smith and Elizabeth Elliot, women who were gifted teachers who provided great instruction and inspiration to women but were not pastors, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or 1 Timothy 2. And then I think of other men and women, Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, men's studies, women's studies, home fellowships. Again, we are blessed in this church with dozens of men and women who are called and gifted to teach children and adults and do so with great enthusiasm, but most of them will never be and are not called to be pastors. 
Rather, they're gifted teachers who build up the body of Christ by accurately teaching us the word of God. So here's where Paul's going, and thank you for waiting. (laughs) Paul's point in our text this morning is that it's by God's design that he's built diversity into the church. Different gifts, different gifted people, all working together in unity to build up the church in Christ. But I want to remind you that the word diversity that I'm using, and as Paul describes it here in Ephesians, is different than the world often uses it. In other words, today in the world, you might work with a person who's not a believer, and they may talk about diversity in in, in the sense that there's all kinds of different people, but they recognize that every single human being has value, intrinsic value. Well, yeah, I can get behind that, because that's what the Bible says. Every human being bears the image of God, and so we we, we see intrinsic value in every human being, no matter how diverse they are. But too often today, people mean when they say diversity that every philosophy, every religion, every culture is equally valid and true, and that is wrong, and it's not biblical. For example, as a Christian, you and I are called to love all people, including the person who rejects Christ. And so I might be sharing with a Hindu who has a different worldview than I do, and I'm going to love that person, but I do not acknowledge that the Hindu worldview is equal to the Christian worldview, or that it's even true. In fact, I would say that it's from the pit of hell itself because Hinduism promotes what I believe is the most extreme form of prejudice that we find on planet Earth. It's a religious prejudice. In other words, it's based on the predestination of when a person's, how a person's born. And in Hinduism, people are born into a certain caste from which they can never, ever rise above. There's a group called the Dalit people who are considered below the caste system in Hinduism and they are never allowed to get an education. They are never allowed to marry anyone outside their caste. They instead are are, are conscripted to the lowest, most menial, most disgusting jobs that a person could do in India. And they're considered to be kind of like less than human. Well, That's bad as a prejudice, but to try to justify it with religion like God ordained, that's wicked, that's evil, that's wrong, and that's Hinduism. My point is this, it would be naive to pretend that all ideas, all religions, all philosophies and cultures are equally valid under the name diversity. Now, to hold that view, you would have to conclude wrongly that no one anywhere at any time has ever said anything wrong. And that's clearly not true. No, there is truth and there is the lie. Well, obviously, Paul's not talking about that kind of diversity. No, what he is promoting and what he wrote to his friends at Ephesus and to you and I this morning is this by God designed that you and I are different, all bearing the image of God, all expressing his infinite blessings in the unique, wonderful way that he has gifted us in the measure of grace that he's given us. And as we work together, to build the body of Christ and advance the kingdom of God and to remind us each that every person in the church is a gift to you from God. And therefore, we ought to appreciate and make it a point to appreciate the diversity of people and their gifting here at Calvary Modesto and in the universal church in the world today. And then to pray that we would continue to work together 
to accomplish God's plan, his unique plan for Calvary Modesto. I want to say, thank the Lord we're not all the same. Because some of you look really silly without any hair on your head. <laughs> I mean, not everybody can look this good. I mean, you know. <laughs> thank the Lord that he's put people in our fellowship that we may not yet appreciate or even be comfortable with. Because often those are the people that God is using to change our old nature into a Christ-like nature. I want to encourage you that maybe today at the conclusion of our service, that you thank a person that you've just kind of seen week in and week out and they provide some service that you've just never really paid attention to. But now you recognize, you know what? I'm thankful that there's somebody to open that door. I'm thankful that somebody makes the coffee. I'm thankful that somebody cleans the bathroom and puts toilet paper in those stalls, right? And just to take a moment to thank someone for their gifting and how they use it to bless our fellowship. And then finally, I want to remind you that you, every one of you, is necessary to this body. And I want to encourage you that if you struggle either as an individual to see your place or to see the significance of other people in the body of Christ, then I would just encourage you, pray and ask the Lord to open your eyes because it's by his design that you are here and it's by his design that we're all different and have different gifting and all of us as we use that are going to build unity and maturity in this body. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I thank you for Paul's reminder. Lord, I know for some of the folks in the fellowship today, they're, they're just thinking, yes and amen, and, and that's exactly the way I see it. I'm so thankful for all of the different people that you brought to this church. And Father, perhaps for others, it may be a bit of an exhortation in the sense that they may be sitting here thinking, ouch, <laughs> that hurt, because they may in their heart have thought some of the people in our fellowship were not necessary. In fact, we might be better off without them. And so, Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning, whichever category we find ourselves in, and either encourage or exhort us. And, Father, I pray for everyone here this morning that if there's a brother or sister in Christ who feels like they just don't matter, like they just don't count, like they have no purpose, God, I pray that this moment, this very moment, that you would speak by your spirit into the depth of their being and remind them that there's a biblical authority to recognize that they are needed, they are gifted, and that they are unique and have a unique place in the body of Christ. And so, Lord, let no one leave this place feeling like they don't belong, but rather remind each and every one of us that we belong to you, we belong in this church, and that we have a part to play that is vital and important in these last days. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Paul Lester. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Paul's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.